QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Michael Flood. Michael is an associate professor at QUT's School of Justice. His research is on gender, sexuality and interpersonal violence. His recent work focuses on engaging men and boys to prevent violence against women, and his work in this field is well-respected, prolific, and widely cited. I'll also include a content warning for this episode. Given Michael's field of expertise, there is obviously mention of domestic violence and violence against women. For the most part, this is an academic discussion, but Jody and Michael do briefly describe some instances where they've seen violence perpetrated on the street and how they responded in those moments. We do have the odd swear word in this podcast, but there's a bit more spicy language during that part of the discussion. On a personal note, Michael is my PhD supervisor. For the past two and a half years, he's helped me develop and navigate my project while I freaked out about how much literature there is on sexual violence and how to put my confirmation document and ethics application and thesis chapters together. He's been an invaluable source of knowledge, guidance and encouragement, and I'm so happy I lucked into having him on my team. Lastly, The audio quality is a little different in the final 10-ish minutes of this episode, as we had to switch to the backup recorder. Thank the audio gods for backup recorders. Without any further ado, Michael Flood. Welcome to How To Academia. Who the heck are you? (laughs) Uh, Michael uh, is my name. Uh, You can call me Michael. Um, So I'm an associate professor in the School of Justice at the Queensland University of Technology. Been here about four years. Been in academia since, I don't know, God knows, 2005, something like that. Yeah, and so full-time, what they used to call tenured academic here. Yeah. How did you come to academia? Good question. I, kind of by accident or by happenstance, I did a Bachelor of Arts with Honours at ANU. I didn't really know what I wanted to do after that. I went into community education. I worked for a domestic violence service and a a rape crisis centre. I worked as an educator for a sexual health and family planning service and then legal aid. So I was doing a bunch of community education jobs and then decided actually that I wanted to do a PhD. So I went and did a PhD. I took way too long to do it, six years, which was a bit of a disaster. And so I was off scholarship. I was on the dole, really feeling poor and frustrated and finally got it done and then started applying for academic jobs and had a series of short-term contract positions in gender studies, in sociology at ANU and so on. Yeah, sort of scrabbling for jobs for three or four years and then got a postdoc, was able to get a postdoc, cut that short to take another three-year position and then finally got an ongoing position at the University of Wollongong uh, in sociology there and moved there with my partner at the time. Seven years there and then my partner got a job up here and was keen to move and I had just got a grant 
big shiny grant, an mm. ARC Future Fellowship. And so I was attractive to QUT. And so we were able to both move with our kids and did so about five years ago, I think. Yeah, since separated from her, but still obviously in this position at QUT. What did you do as an undergrad? What was your undergrad degree? Uh, what was it? Sociology and Gender Studies. Yeah, so Sociology Honours, major in Gender Studies. My PhD officially is Gender and Sexuality Studies. Yeah. I've got to say, Michael, it's a bit odd to have a guy in a Gender Studies degree. True. Look, I, I was definitely the odd man out. And so let's think. So an undergrad, women, I mean, when I was doing it undergrad, it was called Women's Studies. And it was, you know, tutorials of eight to ten people. I was the only man. And the others were like half young and half mature age women leaving their husbands, coming to feminist realisations and kind of, you know, going through these profound personal transformations. And it was, yeah, fascinating. And, you know, I learned lots from it. I was also involved in pro-feminist activism and it was really that that well one that I suppose it was that orientation that took me to women's and gender studies in the first place so when I was at uni I got involved in an anti-sexist men's group a men's consciousness raising group so we met for three and a half hours every second Tuesday for like two years so I was involved in that and from that into kind of pro-feminist activism I started a newsletter called in fact it was called Wet Patch when it began but then became XY That's so um, great. So I printed pro-feminist magazine ran <clears throat> that for 4 years sorry for 7 years four issues a year and then turned that into a website. So I had a series of kind of activist involvements. A primary one was in left-wing student politics. So I'd already been involved in activism prior to uni. When I went to uni I got involved in the local peace group and then in what and a kind of non-aligned left-wing student group called Left Catalyst. And feminist women were the backbone of that mm. group. So I was going out with feminist women. I had feminist women as friends. I and other men in the group were being challenged on our sexism. You know, we've just had a meeting. The men all get up and leave the room and the women clean up the mugs. That's not cool. Let's change that. And being called out on sexism in various ways. So the involvement in lefty politics, undergraduate women's studies and then gender studies and other kind of activist involvements, they've kind of shaped my trajectories into academia. So you were just talking about your mum, who sounds like an incredible woman. Did you grow up thinking, yeah, I'm like gender equitable? I'm all over recognising women as equal human beings. Not really. I, I think I had some sense of difference from the boys I was at school with, So, at, for example. So I was at a mixed-sex state school till year eight and then went to a private boys' school. This is in Canberra. And, you know, I knew that I felt different in some ways from lots of the other boys in terms of kind of gender stuff. So I felt I, I was more kind of effeminate in terms of how I presented. I was the first one at that school to dye my hair. I mean, I, I was and always have been straight. I was never sort of, never really questioned my sexual identity, but had a strong sense of discomfort with or criticism of kind of, mainstream masculine culture felt some sense of distance from it although there were also ways in which I behaved in all kinds of dodgy sexist ways so it wasn't that I was some perfect anti-sexist young man but I had some sense of critique of you know patriarchal masculinity and that then meant that when I went to uni I think the kind of feminist politics I encountered had more bite had more traction for me than it might have and I was personally interested in it and so then when I saw, for example, that ad for a men's group, I joined and, you know, gravitated to the kind of anti-sexist, the other anti-sexist men, and we started talking about, you know, sexism and porn and fathering and violence and bullying and all kinds of stuff. And some of that wasn't easy because 
I was, you know, through that group and through other involvements, I was seeing ways that I was complicit in or perpetrating sexism. But I was also learning. I was passionate about those things. I was fascinated by it. And so it kind of made sense to then do women's and gender studies. And when I came back to university to do a PhD in that area. Yeah. When you decide as a young man to do women and gender study, what happens in your peer group? Like, how do, how do other men respond to that? My immediate peers were fine with that because my, my, two of my closest male friends were in that men's group. Yeah, right. So I met them through that men's group and they shared a kind of feminist politics, although there were disagreements about which feminist politics we shared, you know, debates within different strands of feminism and so on. So among my immediate peers who were typically sort of feminist or lefty men and feminist women, largely... That was fine. My dad wasn't impressed at the time. He's mellowed since and is now incredibly supportive and proud. But at the time, he really was concerned about my interest in sociology and women's studies, thought I was being led astray by these lefty lecturers. Not, you know, sexually, but kind of politically and ideologically led astray. Thought it had no career prospects and so on. And he's totally mellowed since, I should say, in his defence. I had a girlfriend who wasn't that keen on some of that stuff because she wasn't very feminist and actually was uncomfortable with some of the kind of questioning of gender and sexuality that I was doing. So it wasn't the case that all the women around me were necessarily on board with the kind of feminist politics and practice I was starting to develop. Yeah. What what is it about you that's, I guess, meant you've stuck with that? kind of trajectory yeah look I mean it's hard to say it's tempting to offer a, offer a kind of essentialist narrative I've always been the kind of man who blah or I've always believed in x and I don't think those things are true so I've wondered why I and my two siblings all have strong social justice politics yeah so my dad uh, my brother sorry has been a human right that worked in the human rights field and in lefty journalism my sister was national secretary of the CPSU until recently so there's kind of, you know, have a sort of shared social justice politics. And we didn't get it directly from my parents. Mm. Like my dad is kind of right-wing labour, socially, politically. My mum was a professional mountaineer and then an archaeologist. So they're both, you know, high-achieving people, but not with very strong social justice politics. But I think I got from them and from living in Bangladesh for three years and other experiences, a kind of sense of principle or a sense of values, a sense of trying to be fair, trying to behave ethically, at least a kind of diffuse progressive politics. And I'm not sure how that's turned into a more strongly kind of feminist and social justice politics. Maybe it's by accident. Maybe it was particular friendships I had. I'm not sure. But I don't like a reading where it's it's who I've always been or something. That doesn't seem to make sense. That seems like it involves a great deal of self-reflection. Mainly because you get asked. So earlier, I mean, less so now, but, you know... Once upon a time, it was really unusual for men to be interested mm. in and supportive of feminist politics. So I you know, had lots of experiences where I'd be at a Violence Against Women conference or a feminist event, and I was literally the only man there of 100 people. And people would ask me to help them set up the coffee urn because they thought I was staff. You know, it's just, it was very odd to be a man in that space. And in women's studies too. So you get asked, how did you come to this? So really, because I've been asked that question a bit, I've... I suppose, tried to reflect critically on it and develop some kind of narrative. But it's still a narrative that I'm unsure about. It's so interesting, the setting up the coffee urn, because it's like exactly the same thing of women in all-male environments where they assumed that they're some form of domestic task. Yeah, look, it was never demeaning. I never felt insulted by it. I just was conscious of my kind of, you know, relatively atypical status. But it's also been a real privilege to listen to and be around women sharing 
personal experience or reflecting politically and so on. I've learned enormous amounts from it. But it's also been hard, of course, kind of the kind of personal politics of navigating feminist spaces as a man. And there's an interesting kind of reaction I've had in both academic and activist spaces, feminist spaces, where on the one hand, a kind of excessive praise. It's mm. so good to see to see a man here. I wish there were more men like you. It's wonderful that you're doing this. Kind of praise out of all proportion to my efforts and certainly disproportionate to the efforts that women, to the praise that women get on the one hand. A kind of pedestal effect, you would call yeah. it, being put up on a pedestal as a man in this space. On the other hand, a distrust, a suspicion. Who the fuck are you? What are you doing here? And a kind of distrust of my motives. And I understand both of those. You know, the first is because there's so few men interested in this stuff and doing the work in some ways. The second is about a very understandable suspicion and distrust of men. But it's meant that I'm conscious of my behaviour, like in chatting to someone at a conference, you know, particularly someone who's like a woman and who's significantly younger than me. I have to be really careful about, I suppose, how that looks and obviously how I behave because it's so readily perceived as sleazy, as predatory, as dominating and so on and look it's fine it's totally easy to do but it's yeah I feel more self-conscious in those spaces than I do in some other say male dominated spaces actually no I feel self-conscious in those too but in a different way conscious of this kind of blokey camaraderie that I'm expected to go along with that I don't want to I mean this is the thing because when I'm in like blokey environments like I feel this tension that's about a feminist kind of perspective that I bring in my life but as a difference as a woman how do you I guess, reconcile being a man with blokey masculinity being difficult. Yeah, look, I mean, it's and that stuff is so normative. I'm not often in those spaces, partly because academic cultures tend to be slightly, slightly less patriarchal, definitely deeply patriarchal in all kinds of ways, but less of that kind of overt blokiness, you know, explicit invitations to sexual harassment or objectification, for example, which I've, you know, experienced in other contexts. But, yeah, look, I, you know, at... At worst, I will just not go along with it. I will, you know, I've been in contacts with other men where they're wanting to talk about women in problematic ways or just sort of offer dodgy commentary. And, you know, it doesn't feel ideal, but at best I just won't endorse it, won't Mm. laugh along or whatever. But at times I certainly will challenge it explicitly. So I remember I had a senior sociology colleague at the University of Wollongong who'd been subject to some complaints for failing to support junior female staff. And that came up in conversation, just the two of us, and he was talking about the sisterhood and how the sisterhood had it out for him. And I explicitly countered that and said, you know, he needed to take seriously those concerns and he had a responsibility in his role. And that was a really difficult conversation because he was my boss. Yeah, so look, there's times when I will explicitly speak up. Likewise, you know, I remember being on a plane next to some guy I didn't know at all, but the flight attendant was walking down the aisle and bending over to do something in the aisle, bending over to do something in the trolley, and he nudges me and says, check that out. Like, we hadn't spoken a word, but he said, hey, let's objectify this woman together. And, you know, it took me a moment to kind of figure out what was going on and to kind of figure out what I could say. And I think I just said something like, mate, she's just doing a job. You know, like, I don't want to be party to that. Yeah. But stuff's not easy. Do you think things are changing? Uh, I do. Um, certainly my impression is that, particularly in white-collar and corporate spaces and in academic spaces, there's less overt tolerance for kind of explicit sexual harassment, like explicit and explicit sexism, like explicit racism and so on. But I think there's still strong patriarchal dynamics to academia as elsewhere in terms of, you know, how female and male teachers are evaluated by students in terms of informal patterns of interaction 
among academics in terms of divisions of labour, who's expected to do service work, who's expected to provide nurturance and care and so on. So, yeah, I've kind of done my homework enough to know that this space, like most spaces, Mm -hmm. is structured by unfair gender dynamics. And that means that I have to acknowledge that the fact that I've got to ASPRO, to associate professor and the level I am in my career, that has to have been structured to some extent by those same patterns, by patterns of privilege. So, you know, I've certainly worked hard, I've got skills, and I suspect where I am now has to have also been structured to some extent by broader patterns of privilege that privilege me and disadvantage women. That doesn't mean I'm going to give up my job, but I think I have to acknowledge that as part of my trajectory. Mm. That sounds really difficult and confronting. Yeah, I suppose it's it's a kind of it's a politics of ally politics or a politics yeah. where members of privileged groups try to undo the bases of their own privilege and as part of that, you know, reflecting critically on their own privilege. And I suppose I wouldn't say I'm an expert at that, but I feel familiar with it because that's what I've tried to do as a man, to kind of reflect on the fact that I'm a member of a privileged social category and I get privileges whether I want to or not, just mm. by sending in my CV with a male name or by opening my mouth in a meeting, I'm likely to be listened to more than a woman saying exactly the same things in that meeting. Or lecturing in front of a class, I will be judged more positively or less harshly than a woman giving the same lecture. And so I suppose I'm used to trying to acknowledge the forms of privilege that I'm that I receive, unfair privilege. And of course, you know, I should acknowledge I don't only have gender privilege, I'm also white, I'm adult, I'm able-bodied, I'm first world, I'm heterosexual. Essentially, I have every form of privilege there is. And I kind of joke with my partner that it's great. It's so easy. Um, you know, of course, that's flippant. But, um, yeah, and the questions about what you do about that are harder, I think. Yeah. Do you feel like there's been, I guess, blowback in your life from being a man who is outspoken on feminist issues? Who Has there been consequences? Uh, primarily from men I would say I don't know I mean I think uh, I don't know I think that sometimes that kind of suspicion or distrust or the sense that no women should be doing this work may have counted against me so to be blunt for example I went for a series of women's and gender studies jobs and my sex might have counted against me I think what was more likely though that it was actually the type of feminist scholarship I do that essentially my work was too critical realist too materialist too radical feminist and that the jobs in question, they were looking for more postmodern, post-structuralist um, feminist scholars. So I think it probably wasn't a lot about my sex, but I sometimes I think, oh, I don't know, probably been treated less seriously or with less credibility by some male audiences because I'm not a, I would say, I'm not a blokey bloke. Mm. I don't have the kind of automatic acceptance that someone who, you know, was a top cricket player at school or something and can, you know, down lots of beers or whatever. But I don't think there's significant penalties really. Yeah. Aren't all radical feminists just angry, hairy-legged lesbians? Uh, well, I'm two of those, and certainly attracted to women, but you're not a lesbian. Um, yeah, no, uh, you must be being flippant, I would hope yeah. so. Um, so, you know, I think radical feminism is widely misrepresented and vilified in popular culture and in academia. And it shits me that, in fact, in much mainstream feminist scholarship, radical feminism is kind of of seriously misrepresented as deeply biologically essentialist, as structurally determinist, in ways that I just think are inaccurate. So, yeah, I get grumpy at, I think, some of the misrepresentations of radical feminism. And I, and certainly in the 
So the work I do is primarily on violence against women. And radical feminist scholarship still has a real currency there that it doesn't have in lots of other areas of feminist mm-hmm. scholarship. And, you know, obviously I th- the radical feminist informed scholarship that I support is not the same radical feminism that was being written about in the 70s and 80s. It's far more intersectional. It's been inflected by some post-structuralisms. So it's different. But I would say that radical feminist scholarship has significant insights that people working on violence against women you know, should continue to draw on. Tell us then what you understand radical feminist perspectives to be. Yeah, sure. So look, putting in simple terms, you know, early second wave feminism, three dominant strands of feminism, radical, socialist and liberal, and radical feminisms were defined by the argument that patriarchy, a kind of structure of male domination, is at the root of society. So that's where the term radical comes from. And that has a kind of primacy in ordering social life and in structuring other forms of oppression and that that system of oppression is expressed in part through men's control of women's bodies or violation of women's bodies. So an attention to sexual violence, to the patriarchal structuring of heterosexuality and to other forms of men's control of women's bodies for which there was less attention in other schools of feminism, socialist and liberal feminisms. I mean, just to be clear, I'm quite sympathetic to socialist and anarcho-feminisms too, and I feel like my kind of feminist politics is a kind of messy and not very well worked out blend of different schools of feminism, actually. And these days, working in the field of the primary prevention of violence against women, it's also shaped quite a lot by public health perspectives, which are quite different, and by broader sociological perspectives. And in some ways, I think that I need to go back and do my homework because some of the kind of feminist orientations of my work, I think, get diluted by public health orientations, which can be more individualistic, more depoliticising, and so on. So I wouldn't, yeah, I'm sort of trying to say to you, I don't feel like I've got a really coherent theoretical framework that I'm, you know, perfectly comfortable with. I feel like it's work in progress. And if I, if I could only read the 10 books on my desk, yeah, right. then I'd be, you know, closer to it. I mean, yeah. same. The big question, I guess, I would hear in listening to you talk and I would, in thinking through the kind of different perspectives out there, why are you a feminist and not just a humanist? Good question. So I, I wouldn't actually call the term, I use the term feminist for myself. I tend to say pro-feminist out of a kind of sense that only women should claim the term feminist and the kind of risks of a kind of colonising gesture in claiming the term for myself. And that's about the recognition of lived experience and social location um, and that, you know, having, you know, been born male and, and living and identifying as a man, I just, my life is structured in a different way from those of women. So I shouldn't claim the term feminist for myself, but I have no problem with other men doing so. In a sense, I care less what men call ourselves and more about just men supporting and doing the work. Nevertheless, what was, your, what was the question? Oh, why are feminists not <laughs> why humanists? Why feminists not a humanist? Because I would say that gender remains a really significant category of social life, a really significant way of organising society and is characterised by pervasive and systemic inequalities and that it's desirable to focus on and address those. And so absolutely, there are other forms of inequality and injustice that we should also address. So I don't believe that gender inequality necessarily is the most important form of injustice that anyone should address, but it's the one I'm particularly interested in addressing, the one on which I focus. And so I'd use the term pro-feminist for myself to represent that orientation, that commitment. And I think if we call ourselves humanist, we run the risk of flattening what are still pervasive inequalities. And so flattening our analysis of what's going on, but also flattening the strategies we use. So for example, I think that women focused and women only organizing is still an important part of feminist social change. I think that 
the fact of gender inequalities also structures the kinds of strategies we should use, including strategies in the academy and elsewhere for addressing those inequalities. Yeah, but aren't men victims too? <laughs> I like your flippant question style. No, no. Look, I would say that um, the gender order, so you know, if we use that term for the sort of structuring of gender at the societal level, the gender order involves systematic female disadvantage and male privilege. And there are some ways that men's lives are constrained or limited by the gender order as well. So dominant constructions of masculinity are limiting for men's physical and mental health, for men's relationships that constrain men's you know, intimate lives and friendships and so on. But I wouldn't say that men are oppressed as men and certainly not oppressed to the same extent or in the same ways as women. So I don't think there's a symmetry there where women and men are equally limited by gender roles. That's a kind of sex role theory approach which I think is misguided and wrong. Um, I'm, yeah, I think that instead there are systematic asymmetries in women's and men's lives such that, yes, men are limited, but no, we're not victims in relation to gender in the same way women are, or at least oppressed in the same way. Certainly some men are victims, but they're victims of other forms of oppression. And some men suffer very significantly to do with gender policing. So trans men, gay and bisexual men, and so on. And that can be brutal, it can be, you know, it can be lethal. But I wouldn't say that men as a class or category are oppressed as men. How does that all translate into the work that you do? It means that as a as an activist as a, and as an academic, I try to address those forms of inequality in my personal political practice and my work. So I, at the moment, I'm focused a lot on, I think, a particularly blunt expression of patriarchal inequalities, men's violence against women, and of course, there's also violence against men and other forms of violence by women and so on. And I acknowledge those, but I prioritise addressing, I think, one of the most pervasive forms of violence, mm. men's violence against women. And so it sort of shapes what I focus on academically. and. I, I try to make it shape how I do that work and how I live my daily life, how I act in my relationship with my partner, how I act in my friendships, how I treat my children, how I walk along the street. Mm. You keep talking about being an activist and an academic, which is one of the magic things about feminist perspectives. What's the distinction for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I wrote a piece with two colleagues at the University of Wollongong about being an academic and an activist, and I would have liked to have looked over it before this meeting. Um, <laughs> but I think we talked about three different ways that those things can come together. I can't remember what those formulations were, but I do see them as not... I don't know if this is the word contiguous, where, they're, where they have equal... where they you know map perfectly onto mm. each other. I see them as two overlapping fields of practice. So there are things I do as an activist that aren't directly to do with academia. So, for example, doing some public media commentary, for example, or producing accessible fact sheets for practitioner audiences or running a website, which is a kind of clearinghouse for pro-feminist advocacy and so on. But all those things actually overlap with my academic practice as well. So the practice of research and teaching and governance and so on. So I, I suppose I see them as distinct but overlapping fields of practice, if that was your question, mm. but they very much inflect each other. So in my activism, one of the things I try to do is translate and disseminate feminist scholarship into non-academic realms through Twitter, through XY, the website I run, through media commentary. But I also try to go the other way so that kind of activist emphases and agendas inflect my scholarship, the things I work on. I try to do scholarship that will make some difference in the world. I have no problem with purely theoretical scholarship at all, but 
the scholarship I try to do typically is oriented towards policy and programming. Is that easy? Uh, yes and no. Um, no, because it makes it real. Mm. Because it, it's very hard to, in some ways, think about what kinds of uh, scholarship will actually be useful mm. for, you know, sort of shifting contested policy and programming fields. And, you know, you're asked by practitioners and policymakers, well, what should I do? What program should I fund? Or how most effectively can we shift norms of sexual violence on a university campus? Or what can we do to lessen community belief that women routinely make false accusations of rape? And that's hard to figure out what's actually going to make change. It'd be kind of easier in a way just to be sort of sit at one's desk and do stuff that was something more, somewhat more abstract, more theoretical. Maybe it would be easier. That's also, I realise that that work is also challenging in other ways, but it also, it also can be motivating to have some sense that this is making some difference in the world, this is meaningful for the people involved in it, to have some sense that you're making a difference. So I'm kind of, you know, maybe, I don't know, bold enough, arrogant enough, I don't know, to think that some of the work I've done in my academic career has helped make some difference, has helped make some small difference to how other people do things, to how people run healthy relationships programs in schools or how they try to talk to men in a workplace about their role in stopping sexual harassment, or even just how people in the community in general think about feminism and masculinity mm. and so on. What does that look like in your day-to-day? That's a great question. So some of what it looks like, for example, is producing and reviewing research on what makes change. So, for example, what, what do we do about the perennial fact in work with men and boys on gender issues that some men and boys resist? They push back. They, you know, so there's the problem of resistance and backlash in face-to-face workshops, in social marketing campaigns, in advocacy, in public debate, and so on. And so what kinds of framing, what kinds of messages, what kinds of teaching and learning strategies can we use that will make that less likely? That will mean that a smaller proportion of men in the room or in the community go stuff this you know this is male bashing this is you know this is anti-male and so on that kind of resistance and pushback and so one thing that looks like is testing different approaches you know or you know evaluating programs so collaborating with people in the community with practitioners and organizations and gathering data on the workings of those programs and looking at what works and what doesn't that's one way that's one way that looks in practice another way is just reviewing literature is reading you know other people's mm. work and learning from experience but the translation work is then in saying here's what best practice looks like or here's what effective practice looks like so for example i worked with colleagues in canada in 2021 to identify the principles of best practice for programs engaging men and boys in violence prevention and this was a, a document written for policymakers and funders, as well as practitioners. In other words, here's what you should fund, here's what you shouldn't fund. Here's what you should try to develop in your own programs, here's what you shouldn't, here's what you should steer clear from. You know, a one-off didactic lecture to a group of 200 men is unlikely to make sustaining change. Small, interactive, participatory workshops, explicitly addressing gender and getting men to critically reflect on masculinity, they're more likely to make change. So do that, not the other thing. So, you know, guides to best practice, reports on effective interventions, checklists. So I'm working with colleagues in Deakin University at the moment on a checklist, a checklist for programs working with men and boys. So it's partly for practitioners. You know, how do they rate? What do they need to work on? What aspects of their programming do they need to work on? What's great? What's weak? But it's also for programmers and funders and governments. Here's what you should support. Here's what you shouldn't. Because 
in the field of engaging men and boys in violence prevention, which is my kind of focus, there are a growing number of practitioners and organisations, some of which don't have feminist politics, don't have feminist mm. agendas, and that's, that means that they may do work that's ineffective, if not harmful. So do you think the feminist agenda is essential? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Why? <laughs> so you kind of ask me, why do I believe so strongly that you know, yeah, in feminism? I mean, um, look, I yeah. mean, clearly, like, I'm team feminist. Like, nobody's going to, who has anything, knows anything about me is team yeah. feminist. But there are a bunch of, I think, people who will be listening in who will be going, why can I not just be a good bloke? Why do I be, have to be a good bloke that is pro-feminist? Yeah, look, I don't think you have to use that label or go off and read a bunch of feminist literature. And I've met men who've never read a feminist book, never been to a women's studies class in their life, but they are absolutely lovely men who treat every woman and girl around them with care and respect. And I've read lots of feminist books and I've been to lots of women's studies classes and I sometimes get it wrong and don't behave well around women. I certainly have done so in the past. Um, but I would say to them, great, so you're a good bloke, you're committed to that, that's fantastic. And what does that actually mean? You know, if we take that seriously, then that does mean that you never pressure your partner into sex. It does mean you're sharing the domestic work. It does mean you don't inappropriately objectify, sexually objectify the women around you at work. So if that's what a good bloke means to you, fantastic. I'm all for it. I want to give you a medal. But if being a good bloke is actually about turning a blind eye to the sexism around you and perpetuating it yourself, then I don't think you can fairly call yourself a good bloke. Yeah. So, so if people say, well, why feminism? I think that, well, it names a systematic inequality that exists, no doubt. So in other words, its analysis is accurate and its values or ethics are you know, undeniable. Mm. That if there's an injustice that's going on, we have a personal and collective responsibility to do something about it. So feminism struggle, though, some feminisms and some feminists struggle with the inclusion of men and boys in this kind of gendered violence narrative. For sure. Why do you think it's so important? Uh, well, I'm, I would say that the feminists' concern or suspicion or hostility about an emphasis on engaging men and boys in preventing violence against women, I think, is warranted because there have been times when this growing emphasis on engaging men and boys has pushed aside women's voices and women's experience, has failed to acknowledge women's leadership in this space, and has sometimes meant that uh, women-only and women-focused initiatives and programs feel under pressure to include men and boys. And I think all of those things are problematic, obviously. I think that women-only and women-focused initiatives remain vital. I think in doing this work, I and others should acknowledge women's leadership, and we should do this work in partnership as allies to women and women's rights organisations, rather than, don't worry, ladies, we'll take it from here. A kind of, you know, old school, patriarchal, mm. men will come in and solve the problem way of doing things. What was your question, though? My question is, why is it so important to include men and boys in that narrative? Okay, well, really, OK, so if we're trying to address uh, violence against women and girls, well, who's doing that? Mm. We're not going to end that problem unless we address the behaviour that that problem represents, which is violence by men against women and girls. Now, of course, in most contexts, most men don't use violence against women and girls. And so in most contexts, and I say most because there's some places where this isn't true, but in most contexts, it's a minority of men who are perpetrating violence against women and girls and a broader group of men who condone that and then some men who resist or oppose that. So to make, make change in that, by definition, we're going to have to change the attitudes and behaviours 
of those men. That's that's the first and most compelling rationale for engaging men and boys. Which men? Which the men who perpetrate violence. Okay. We're going to have to shift those men's attitudes and behaviours and the way that they... and the kind of social and structural conditions that make them. Because they don't come out of thin air. Perpetrators are made, not born, by social and structural conditions. So to prevent and reduce that violence, we're going to have to cha- tackle those social and structural conditions. But the second compelling rationale for engaging men and boys is that that behaviour that some men perpetrate is structured by masculinity. It's structured by the meanings given to being a man and the social organisation of men's lives and relations. Again, it doesn't come out of thin air. It comes out of the ways that boys and men are socialised, the peer relations they participate in, the social and structural inequalities that are the bread and butter of men's and women's lives. So we have to address men and boys because it's men and boys who perpetrate the violence. Second, we have to address men and boys because it's the meanings and social organisation of men's and boys' lives that produce that violence. Third, we have to address men and boys because men and boys have a vital and positive role to play. Mm. So this third rationale is a more optimistic, a more hopeful rationale, which is that many men and boys already treat the women and girls in their lives with respect and that men have a vital role in making change, in part because, sadly and ironically, men will often listen more readily to men than they will to Mm. women, saying we need to do something about this. This is a serious problem of men's violence against women. And certainly there's evidence that, you know, men and women give exactly the same talk to a male audience that the male audience will listen more readily to and judge as more credible and authoritative the male speaker. That's unfortunate, but we can use that. Men can use that to our advantage, but we should also sometimes hand the microphone to women and amplify women's voices as well. But so men have a positive role to play in making change. Yeah, so I, I believe that passionately and try to do the, the academic and scholarly work to realise that. I hear a bunch of men out there going, yeah, you know what, Michael, that's all well and good, but I'm not a perpetrator and I don't condone violence. Why is this important to me? Sure, I would say that's great. It's great that you don't perpetrate and it's great that you don't condone it. I'm interested to hear more about what that looks like in practice. You know, do they speak up when a mate makes a sleazy joke? Do they comment when their mate is, you know, texting his girlfriend 50 times a day asking where she is or hassling her about what she's wearing? So what does that look like in practice? But the men who are doing that, men not perpetrating violence, that's a pretty low bar for what it means to be a decent person, a good bloke, that you don't hit the women around you or rape the women around you. That's great that you don't do that. Again, I think we probably need to think more critically about that because lots of men will say, oh, I'd never rape a woman, but I definitely whinge and whine when my wife doesn't want to have sex and hassle her until eventually we do. I'd never, you know, I'd never rape a woman, but I definitely comment on the boobs of the new, you know, trainee at work. So we need to broaden our understanding of what counts as violence beyond some stranger leaping out of the bushes and violently physically assaulting someone. But men who don't perpetrate, that's great. Men who speak up around sexism and violence-supported comments and behaviours, that's great. And the second one is really important because I think that it's not enough just to refrain from violence ourselves. We have a collective responsibility to speak up because I think the standard you walk past is the standard Mm. you accept. In other words, if we see or are aware of unjust behaviour around us, we have responsibility to speak up, a kind of collective responsibility because to the extent we don't, to the extent we stay silent, we are allowing that to continue. So we're not perpetrators, but we're perpetuators we're perpetuating that violence. So, I mean, I think I've argued this in greater detail in the book I wrote, Engaging Men and Boys in Violence Prevention, and I argue for a kind of collective ethical or moral responsibility. 
And it's partly a responsibility grounded in the shared and unfair privilege that men have. That Yeah, lots of men don't feel very privileged or feel very powerful in the some ways that some men are not powerful at all, are deeply oppressed, although not as men. It's still the case that we have a, a kind of, we're recipients of a shared and unfair privilege and we have an ethical obligation to address that. And one, one blunt and brutal expression of that privilege is the violence that some men perpetrate against women. I'm just going to ask, and it's going to seem obvious, but why? Why, if you have this privilege, do you have an ethical obligation to address it? Why can you not just merrily go on with your life saying... Sure. Well, look, it comes down to values. And at that point, I run out of empirical or even scholarly justifications. And it starts to feel like a faith. And I'm nervous about that because I'm a stroppy atheist. I'm opposed to any form of claims about the supernatural from any religious orientation. But it does feel like a kind of faith in some ways. But at least it's a faith that many people share, some kind of basic sense about fairness, some basic sense that, you know, if there's something really horrible happening in front of you, you should try to do something about it. You know, if you see, you know, someone in front of you kicking their dog and their dog is screaming in pain, you're probably going to speak up. In the same way, I think we have an obligation to speak up about other forms of injustice. Why? What's the basis of that? Some root sense of that's what it means to be human. Mm. But other people say, and other people say, no, my values are a kind of brutal and rigid individualism where it's about looking after number one and... Yeah, I have no traction there. I don't know what to say to that. I wish them the unhappy life that they're going to lead. Um, yeah. I mean, like I agree. It's difficult, and I think this is one of the one of the things that I struggle with talking to students in particular is some of this is grand theory, but a lot of this is going to be about the decisions about who you want to be. Yeah. Like when the drunk is throwing up on your shoes in the gutter, the decision there is not about how horrible the drunk is the decision is about who you want to be in response to that yeah and that's a difficult thing to or or you see a kid fall over in front of you you know you're walking down the footpath and some kid rides past on a skateboard a little kid falls over and they're bleeding and in pain what is keep going it's not your problem they're not your kid or do you stop and ask them if they're okay and you know help them and i think being human is about stopping and assisting them but you could argue that no here's a different set, set of ethics or values where there's no sense of responsibility to others but I think that's a that seems a cruel and heartless ethic to me. It doesn't. It just doesn't seem like a great space to be in, really. So I guess, I mean, my lived experience is often that as a woman, I will be the one stepping in in scenarios, and there'll be a whole bunch of men on the fringes, kind of being hesitant to step in, mm. to the point where I've been standing with my. Um, it was a public domestic violence incident and I had my hand on a guy's chest trying to push him away from a woman that he was violently assaulting in the street. And there was a bunch of these guys that walked out of the gym clearly working out, just like standing around looking, going. And one of them said, can we help? And I'm like, well, obviously. You look like you're built to help. You That's right. Yeah. What is the hesitancy there yeah. from guys to just go... I should do something here. Yeah, so look, there's some really interesting research on bystander intervention, and that's what we're talking about. And what it suggests is that men are more willing than women to step into kind of generic physical confrontations in the street, but less likely to intervene in appropriate ways, more likely to use physical confrontation against the male perpetrator, for example, than a woman would be, but less likely to offer appropriate help 
or to challenge the perpetrator's behaviour in other ways. But, yeah, so it's some interesting research on what shapes men's and women's responses. And certainly men tend to overestimate other men's agreement with the behaviour and support for the behaviour and be less likely to know where someone can go for help and more tolerant of the behaviour itself, more tolerant of violent or harassing behaviour and less likely to name it in those ways. But certainly men will intervene to some extent to a to a similar extent to women in confrontations involving a stranger, although not always in appropriate ways. But for me, I'm an intervener, not physically. There's no way I'm going to engage in a physical fight because I would end up on the ground having my teeth kicked in very quickly. I have no prowess in fighting. My arms are good for typing, really, not for punching. Um, so, But I will definitely intervene, and I've intervened on probably four or five occasions into ongoing incidents of domestic violence. So, for example, you know, being at the shops in Canberra, I'd just done a fruit and veg shop and I was putting some stuff on my bike and I hear this shouting and screaming and there's this young guy shoving his girlfriend up against a phone booth. People may not know what a phone booth is, but a kind of you know metal structure taller than a person in which a phone is on the wall. Anyway, he's slamming her into this metal box and she's screaming in pain and he's, you know, saying, You fucking bitch, whatever. And so I can hear them and I so I walked over to them on my bike so yeah wheeled my bike over to not right next to them but near them and said are you okay you know and said said hey you know leave her alone leave her alone are you okay that kind of thing and of course he turns around and says what everyone would expect fuck off it's none of your fucking business but i stayed there i kept calling out i said mate that's not okay leave her alone i'm going to call the police and he keeps shouting at me and she walked she walked off like walked off from him which is good doesn't mean the relationship now is a perfect healthy relationship but it kind of slowed down the dynamic at least and he then raced after me sort of came running towards me you know screaming you fucking can't i'm gonna you know bash your head in or whatever so i ride off on my push bike but i stopped once i got a safe distance away again to make sure that she walked away and so on and that's a very typical experience i've had that happen four or five Mm -hmm. times where i intervene in an ongoing domestic violence incident they say fuck off it's none of your business they threaten violence against me and the kind of situation resolves in some way. Did the same with a guy kicking his dog. In fact, I thought of this. Kicking his dog at the, sh- at the local shops. Kicking his dog. His dog is screaming in pain. He's holding a long neck of beer and, you know, booting his dog. And I said, mate, leave, you know, leave it alone. And he said to me, fuck off. It's none of your business. And I stay there and say, you know, stop kicking the dog. And he says, do you want a fucking bottle in the face? So again, you know, it's like, okay, this is just a script. I know how this is going to go. But I'm staying back enough to stay safe. But I feel like I should intervene. Mm. Likewise, I'll intervene when someone makes a rape joke or a sleazy comment. I'll speak up. Most of the time. I don't always, but most of the time. So I have that kind of do-gooder ethic that I have a responsibility to try to speak up. I'm not going to put myself at great personal risk. I'm not going to go and punch them, and that would be unethical anyway. But I will try to speak up. I will try to be an active or a pro-social bystander. And it seems to me that's what you should do. That's what anyone should do. I think part of the problem is that we don't particularly for men, we don't give them that kind of script of there is something that you can do short of physical interaction. Absolutely, absolutely. Most, lots of men think that's the only thing you can do. You know, the kind of heroic, violent thing. And in fact, our, you know, our cinema is full of that. Think yeah. John Wick, think you know, a thousand other depictions of the vengeful, violent hero. And that, that's not helpful at all. In fact, it's unethical. That's precisely against what we're trying to challenge. But there's all kinds of things that men and women can do to speak up in response to that behaviour, both when there's violence happening right in front of you or the precursors to or supporters of that violence, violence supportive and sexist comments and so on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm an intervener, really. And I know lots of people don't necessarily have that kind of activist ethic, but I would hope that everyone can think of ways that they can make some small difference at least. So what would your advice be to young men who are kind of 
in a justice degree, they're getting confronted by all of these feminist women saying, and yourself, pro-feminist guy going, there's gender issues that are still a thing, and they're sitting there going, oh, maybe gender issues are a thing. What's your advice to them in processing and reconciling that? Yeah, that's a good question. Look, they are hard conversations, I think, particularly if you're new to these issues. Yeah, look, it's easy to push back. And I think a really important thing to do is to take a breath, is to take a breath and listen, and just listen to what you're being told about that person's experience of sexism or inequality or their account of wider you know, patterns of sexism or inequality and take seriously that this is their account of their experience or this is their perception of what's going on and try not to kind of listen to and act on the resistance you may feel because, you know, understandably, you know, feminist analyses are not, not necessarily very widespread and lots of us are fed a whole lot of kind of victim blaming and sexist and narrow views of seeing the world. And so it's easy to just speak those and push back. But rather than just acting in a kind of knee-jerk and defensive way, I think take a breath, listen, and try to reflect critically. Try to think, you know, what of this could be true? What of this could be accurate? And what role can I play in addressing that? Yeah, and look, this, these are lessons that are hard to learn. And I think about, you know, difficult conversations I've been having recently with my partner about some stuff we're trying to sort out. And I can see those same reactions in, in me where I kind of want to push back and be defensive and argue some intellectual point. But it's not that I'm actually necessarily committed to the intellectual point. I just feel a bit hurt. Mm. I feel a bit angry or upset. Rather than speaking my feelings, I just go on some intellectual counter-argument that's driven by those feelings, but I'm not acknowledging those feelings. Mm. So part of, I think, what helps these conversations is emotional literacy and emotional reflection, kind of critical reflection. Yeah. Do you have a favourite theorist, theory? <laughs> Uh, gosh, look, there's lots of individual feminist writers who've been really influential for me, but it's not that I would have a favourite theorist. But, you know, so, for example, there's a book by Sue Wise and Liz Stanley about sexual harassment. And as part of that, they talk about the need for a feminist ethic of intellectual generosity, of reading and listening to others' works generously, assuming that they, they're doing the best they can and they mean the best they can, rather than, I think a common academic spirit of looking for the weakness mm. and trying to attack others' work. So that's a lesson, you know, a lesson I try to enact. Lots of feminist writers like Liz Kelly or Janet Holland or you know, countless others who I think have really developed rich theorisations of the realities and the complexities of domestic and sexual violence, of violence against men, of other forms of interpersonal violence. Feminist sociological theorists of social and structural forces and relations and how they shape our lives. Oh, post-structuralist and post-modern theorists on the kind of complexities of subjectivity and language and the kind of discursive ordering of society. Yeah, all kinds of people. And as I've said, I feel like I've got much more homework to do. I feel like God, as an associate professor, I really should have a better synthesis of all these different theoretical strands than I do. But I feel like, well, okay, I'll do the best I can and maybe I'll you know, get to read those journal articles you know, on Sunday night. Let's see what I can do. <laughs> One of the things that I have loved about doing these podcasts is getting this insight that people are really just doing the best they can and the willingness of people to go, you know what, I don't know. Mm. I don't have the answer to that, but I'm working on it. And I think that's a beautiful thing to reflect out mm. there. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I've got a kind of fully-fledged imposter syndrome in the sense that 
I know, I definitely know some stuff now. Mm. I know some stuff that I didn't know 30 years ago. I mean, I've been focused on these areas of gender and sexuality and violence and masculinity for 30 years, which is kind of handy. You know, it means that the books I bought then I still like now, but or like some of them at least. But so I know that over that time I've developed some knowledge. I've developed some skills. I can do stuff. I can write mm. a paragraph pretty easily. I can you know, critically assess an argument with some level of skill. So I don't feel like I'm an imposter, but I still feel those feelings sometimes and think I should know more and I should be better at this stuff than I am. And people actually overestimate how good I am. And really I shouldn't go for promotion or I shouldn't apply for that grant. And this work I'm doing is actually a bit crap. Um, have all those kind of levels of doubt. I'm sure I have them less than women because men in general are learned to feel confident in our voices and confident in our knowledge. So I'm helped by the structural privilege I've received and the white privilege and class privilege. So they have all made it easier. But I, was, I would still say that even as a kind of, you know, relatively established academic, I still have those, some of those kind of voices of self-doubt that I think, you know, can plague any of us. I think that's part of the human condition. Yeah. Yeah. So we just have to accept that. But I would say too, we, we can have a kind of sociological analysis of it. It's not, it's not randomly distributed, mm. that imposter syndrome. Sort of self-doubt and imposter syndrome are structured by you know, sexism, by racism, by other things, and the systematic ways that we give credibility and authority to some people's voices and experiences and not to others. It's why lots of men find it a rude shock that the fact that 95% of our corporate boardrooms are staffed by men is not simply due to merit. You know, the idea that that's due to merit, the idea that the fact that large numbers of men in corporate boardrooms all went to the same Sydney private schools, the idea that that's not due to merit is confronting for some people, but clearly that's the case. Mm. What's your top tips for students surviving at university? Find something you love. Find something you care about or you're passionate about and see if you can focus on that and eventually get paid to work on that. That would be one. Recognise that academia involves a set of skills, skills that anyone can learn, skills that you can practice, you can get better at, you can work on. Third, uh, be in it to make a difference. Yeah, help, help in small ways, in big ways, whatever you can do to help make a better mm. world. I love that. Michael, it's <laughs> been a total delight uh, talking to you for How To Academia. I very much appreciate your socks for a start. I've just noticed our Pigs can fly, in fact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate having you as a colleague and being able to share space with you in academia. Thank you. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Dr. Jodie Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams. That's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.